Hey everyone, welcome to episode 187 of the MTG Grandcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Rapple. With me is Lee McLeod. Hey Lee. Hey Chris, how's it going? It's going good. How are you? I'm doing great. I uh, had to pull myself away from Loop Hero to record this podcast. I, I, It seemed like a game that, you know, would suck you in a little bit, so... I I have I actually haven't played it yet. I've only seen it a little bit, but I I thought you might like it. I really need to devote some time to it and not just like open it one day when I'm on lunch and then spiral out of control for the rest of the work day. <laughs> I do that instead of working. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been playing Star Wars Squadrons, which is a there's a lot of really weird stuff about the game that clearly came from like trying to make x-wing versus tie fighter in like 2020 <laughs> um but it's it's been really fun so far once you got past all your random yeah, all EA nonsense stuff. yeah oh my god yeah it took me about 15 minutes to create an ea account because of the extremely complicated and user unfriendly captcha they put in front of the account creation process that was an absolute nightmare it probably would have been easier to rob an actual bank than create an EA account. Well, it certainly, it probably would have been easier to, like, I, I, I feel like at this point, they're doing a better job of, like, making people get frustrated and leave than actually stopping people from, like, uh, like, is anybody having bots make a bunch of fake EA accounts? Like, what's the purpose? I, I don't know enough about the EA economy that they're, don't they have a bunch of, like, loot box sport cards games or is that some other company uh yeah i'm sure they do they all do now right yeah that's that's the first place my head went to but i i have no idea how any of that works so <sighs> anyways on to <laughs> magic the gathering yeah sure let's talk about that yeah so i i figured i like a lot of the conversation has been centered around the mocks and that's what i paid exclusive attention to this past weekend and it's nice i feel like i don't know maybe it's just because of the people that i follow and stuff but i feel like it's really rare now to get like most of the conversation about like one event and it's cool the few times that it actually does happen because it doesn't really happen around the pro tours anymore it doesn't happen around league weekends like yeah that's true like the ever since they moved to mpl driven small tournaments like invitationals no mm -hmm. one really cares yeah or at least some people care and some people don't but this weekend it really felt like everyone was talking about mana crypt versus elspeth and everything else right right the shades of uh foil tarmogoyf did you see did you see a bb's tweet about that no <laughs> <laughs> He, he tweeted late Sunday afternoon and said, I'm late to the conversation about this draft controversy, but I absolutely would have taken the foil tarmac. <laughs> uh, yeah, slowpoke memeing it. Yeah. Yeah, but this was cool to see. And I don't know what exactly, like, I'm probably exaggerating the effect and the, like, amount of conversation that it was taking up. And probably it did get helped along by the fact that, like, it's cube at a high level which is really rare and there were specific moments like those ones that we'll talk about that really like blew people away and, and inspired a lot of conversation but it really did feel different from 
what's happening on an MPL weekend or or whatever. And I, I wonder if some of that is kind of like, it's clear how you get to these tournaments. I mean, it's, it's not clear because the, the mocks, the Magic Online tournament structure is like kind of impenetrable. But if you wanted to qualify for this tournament, you could like go online and make up a flowchart and understand how to do it. <laughs> Whereas with the getting into the MPL and stuff, it's just like, oh, that's impossible. Okay, I understand now. Yeah, I, I honestly, so I know that there exists a path that I can take to do the mocks. Like, I don't even have to research it that much. Yeah. Uh, you just qualify for a showcase, win the showcase, and you're good. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's as much as I make fun of, like, wow, all these tournaments are named the same things and I can never quite remember the structure. Like, it's clear. You queue for a tournament, you win that tournament, you're in the mocks. And like maybe you need some amount of QPs to qualify for something that qualifies for something else, and that's like a pe- that's like something I don't know. Like I'd have to research that and figure it out. But it's like pretty evident you win a few tournaments and you can make your way into the box. Right. Uh, the MPL, I have given up any hope of even trying to like. I, I never cared in the first place to qualify for rivals or anything. Yeah, but it's a it's like a black box. It's just like oh, how how do you get into these things? Huh, I don't know. As far as I can tell, you just spike a tournament over and over and over again. Right. <laughs> spike a tournament, play in a gauntlet, whatever that is. You've never seen that happen before. Well, if you're in the Rivals gauntlet, or sorry, a challenger in that gauntlet, as we discussed like several episodes ago, you're like hugely advantaged right. compared to both Rivals and MPL because of the way they wanted to create artificial churn. Yeah, it is funny, but whatever you know we we spent a whole episode talking about that structure and i have mostly forgotten how it works so whatever i i mean this is just a this is all like you know i'm using this as a comparison because the mox actually does make sense people got into it eight player tournament where each player had to like earn their way in it was really fun to watch i super enjoyed this tournament yeah and the commentators were really good too Mm mm-hmm I watched way more on Saturday than on Sunday because I was more invested. Like Dylan was on that one and right. Daniel as well. Uh, Sunday, I caught like the cube draft and didn't really pay super much attention to anything after that. Yeah. I mean, Sunday was fun because Jan Moritz Merkel just kind of murked on everybody uh, and showed a dominance like based on weird kind of niche decisions that he made in each format and and it was pretty cool and interesting to see yeah generating far more buzz with cube decisions than the modern one right even though i'm not sure like which one i actually like have more fundamental disagreement with i i know which one i have more fundamental disagreement with, and it's the modern one right (laughs) yeah i mean the, the cube stuff is all like, I, I really want to dive into that pretty deep, but like my feeling on this is basically like cube stuff. Nobody really knows actually what's right and what isn't. And a lot of it, even at a high level may come down to personal preference. And like, I can't tell you, you are wrong for taking blade splicer over channel. I can't say that. I don't think that you should bring spirits to a modern tournament. If you're trying to win that modern tournament. <laughs> Especially not a focused metagame of eight players who are all good and all trying to win. Yeah, maybe it was just a, like, another shot, a called shot sort of deal. But the matchups in that, like, the 
he, you know, he won three matches and lost one, but the matchups weren't like good for him. Like Heliod isn't a good matchup for spirits. You knew there would be a couple Heliod decks. Like Shadow's okay. I mean, you have Skyclave Apparition, which I think does a huge like amount of work in that sort of matchup. But like, I, I just don't, I don't really see where you're like picking up your points here. The bizarreness of no one being ready for it, I guess. I, I'm not really yeah. sure. But you know, what the hell do I know? Like that dude won the mocks. So, you know. I'm I'm actually so I didn't watch most of Sunday. I pretty much just caught the cube draft. That was it. Mm-hmm. But it was neat hearing all the conversation around this guy because he was just very clearly winning his own way, and that's always yeah. nice to see. Yeah, and you don't see it all the time, and yeah, it was so it was very cool. Like if he had just drafted Mono Red and Cube and then played, I don't know, Heliod and Modern, like no one would care, right? But he. Yeah, did weird stuff and played really, really, really well. Made a couple unintuitive plays, but his lines were were excellent and all paid off. And I was, yeah, he, he just looked unstoppable on Sunday. Cool. Well, what do you what do you want to tackle first? All right. So in lieu of a keeper mall, which we haven't really done in a long time, but I, I should start because those are still interesting as long as I get, you know, as long as I pull them from somewhere. So I need to do a better job of finding them. And as long as I watch closely coverage of events, then I usually find some interesting ones. So I'm going to probably try to... It's just hard to remember to write them down. It is, it is. But this was a super, super interesting decision point. This is in the match between Daniel Goschel and Justin Gennari. I am actually level one. Jun Deathshadow playing game one against Bogles. And this is just the turn one thought sees. And you see your opponent's hand and you got to figure out what to take. And Daniel tanked for a long time on this one. And, you know, he's a very deliberate player. We saw him tank several times on really important decisions, which is notably an advantage that Magic Online has over Arena. You get to choose where you spend your time. So Daniel's hand, you know, he's fetched a Blood Crypt. He is thought seizing. He has Misha's bobbled himself, I believe. Uh, yeah, Misha's bobbled himself, didn't like the card, and fetched it away. Yeah. Um, actually, that's, an, that's a second fetch in his hand. So maybe he bobbled Justin. I don't remember exactly. But regardless, like this decision is still really, really interesting. Um, his hand is a Death Shadow, another fetch land, a Dismember, and a Grim Lava Mancer. So... Your thought sees your opponent, and you see one land, two Glade Cover Scouts, a Path to Exile, a Spirit Link, a Daybreak Coronet, and a Core Spirit Dancer. So what do you take with the thought sees? I would first do, like, a, uh, what can't I take with the thought sees? Yes. So, to me, that's the Glade Cover Scouts. Since mm-hmm. there's two of them, I'm not going to take either one. Right. Because you really you, only you only need one. Which you hate to see. Like that's your default take with the thought sees. You take the hexproof guy and then you like try to win the game before they can put something together. But that's not an option with this hand, so it's gonna be way more complicated. The core spirit dancer, I don't want to take either because there's a dismember in hand. That's mm-hmm. like the only thing you can target with this member. So yeah. that's easy. Can't take those three creatures. So that leaves the the auras, the daybreak coronet, and the path to exile. And the uh, Grisspoon, right? 
Uh, it's a spirit link. Spirit link. A generic aura. Yeah, an spirit aura links. that... Right. It's a one-mana aura that allows you to put a Daybreak Coronet onto the creature. And if I remember correctly, and I do because I, I literally just looked at his deck list, Daniel only has two engineered explosives to interact with Boggle's stuff. And this is game one, so he doesn't have anything to interact with okay. this game. Okay. So it's either Path or an Aura. Mm -hmm. And I think there's defensible arguments for all three of those cards, really. Yeah, I don't... I would rather take... Man, if this were a useful aura, other than Spirit Link, mm -hmm. it would make it a lot more convincing to take that card. But Spirit Link is just so beatable mm -hmm. by itself. <laughs> yeah, this one is a tough decision, actually. Yeah. So, so I mean, let's walk through it. Like, you're, you're. I mean, the the Daybreak Cornet and the Spirit Link kind of fall into a similar category when you choose to take one of them with Thoughtseize. You're trying to eliminate your opponent's ability to make a creature with a daybreak coronet on it one way or the other we can talk for a long time like about which way is better take the little aura or take the daybreak coronet probably better to take the daybreak coronet but like regardless that's a stop your opponent's plan thing the alternative is to take the path to exile which is i know that i cannot allow you to get rid of my threat because that's that's more important than stopping you from building a, a, a Voltron with your, your auras. So you have to determine like how you lose and how you win the game. And I think it is really close and really difficult. Daniel took a long time to think about it. And ultimately, he chose to take the path to exile. And certainly given the way it played out, he wouldn't have won if he had taken anything else he did win this game because he took the path to exile. But I think that ultimately, like it is just the right take here to take the path. You've got one threat in your hand. You've got this death shadow. If you allow this game to go for many turns, all that happens is your opponent ends up drawing an ethereal armor or whatever. And what making a yeah. Yeah making making it eventually making something that like you know you can't attack through it for a while and then eventually it gets big enough that you just die to it so you can't allow the game to like extend out you have to restrict the size of you have to restrict the length of the game and you have to figure out a way to end it and your only way of competing say you do take the daybreak coronet you play your death shadow they end up pathing it they put together a hexproof guy that's like kind of medium, but then beating you up and then eventually gets lifelink and then eventually like you can't compete with it. Like you just can't let the game go for that long. And yeah, it's certainly risky leaving them with the ability like, okay, I have the pieces to build a creature here, but I think it's a bad matchup game one. You have to let yourself get a little lucky and you're just like giving yourself the appropriate opportunity to win the game. And so the way that this game played out was took a hit off of the uh, aura'd up boggle that made the death shadow pretty big, a couple of turns of looking at each other, and then eventually drew a team or battle rage and managed to just barely get there. And if there were a path at any point from Justin, like that plan just wouldn't have worked out at all. And if you didn't let yourself take a hit from the daybreak coroneted, boggle then you also 
don't have quite the right size of a death shadow anyway so it took a lot of like very careful battlefield and combat step management to get to that point but i think daniel knew that he was capable of that he's played this deck more than anybody and uh really a, a masterfully piloted game and i think a lot of it came down to this turn one thoughts decision but there were also a lot of points where a lesser player would have lost the game in different spots too just to combat step mismanagement and stuff yeah and i i think this daniel does play very well but i i think this decision just makes sense now that i'm thinking about it mm-hmm. because if you don't take path daniel's like oh, i Got a Mistress Bubble Trigger on the way, but really not very many cards to work with mm-hmm. that are relevant in the matchup. So if Daniel were to take Path and then, or I'm sorry, to, to take Daybreak Coronet, and then we're just looking at like two Boggles and a Spirit Link, like even if like some garbage aura such as Spider Umbra was drawn, mm-hmm. that's still like three lifelink damage you can interact with, and you're not, not really racing with your Grim Lava Mancer. Right. And you can't ever put a throw on the table because of the Path. Yeah, I mean, and, and also a bunch of your your threats in your deck aren't castable because if they gain start gaining some life with a boggle, then you no longer have access to Scourge of the Skyclaves anymore. So you're that much less likely to be drawing a threat out of your deck. Like You've got the good threat in your deck, which is a Death Shadow, and I, I think that just protecting it and doing the best you can to get it to get there is like absolutely correct. And I think... Now that I watched how the game played out, I understand it way better. But my as I was sitting there watching it on my couch, I was just like, I'm really interested to see where this goes. That's for sure a difficult decision to make, especially when the matchup's so skewed. Mm-hmm. To be able to pull it out right there, it's a real... No, not an accident qualified for the mods. No, no, definitely not. Yeah, another game... It, it's interesting, multiple games involving like kind of unfair decks actually came down to combat management so on the next day the next mox jan Mertz merkel was playing against pete ward and merkel was playing as we mentioned azoria spirits i i certainly won't attempt to explain it he played it very well and you know skyclave apparition does mend a lot of sins and and cover up a lot of holes in the deck and stuff but he was playing against pete ward who was on oops all spells and i think you know this was a big gamble on pete's part to bring a, a definitely weakened version of a deck no simian spirit guide but assuming that this type of deck wouldn't have a lot of hate in the field uh it's good against you know i i assume that he likes his heliod matchup and stuff although slowing it down does seem like it would hurt that matchup pretty significantly <laughs> but you know that that's the deck he chose to bring merkel won game one just by putting power and toughness on the board attacking and then the turn before he knew it was like he, he was out of spell quellers he just had to assume that pete was going to play a, a spy and left back enough blockers that he wouldn't die to the Vengevine, sacrifice the selfless spirit, and then just like realized he didn't have to be attacking anymore, stopped attacking, and just survived until Pete drew the Nexus of Fate and then drew for his turn. And there just wasn't enough damage at the other side because there was too much power and toughness on JMM's side to, to die. And it was just a really nicely managed 
set of combat steps against the totally unfair deck. It's it's always nice when those games come down to, all right, your combo deck isn't really an effective combat deck. Mm-hmm. Especially after you perform your combo, you've got a finite amount of turn to kill me. Right. So I've just got to survive two combat steps and we're good. I win the game. Yep. And And that's what he did. Although even if Pete had had infinite time that game, the Vengevines got outsized by the you know, multiple lords, and then all your team is X5's situation that was going on on the spirit side of the board. Really needed the char vulture plan to come through, not yeah. the combat that plan. Yep, yep. But a, a lot of games were really tight play, really interesting. Like, it, it was a fun weekend. I really, really enjoyed watching it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I watched most of the cube games, but I watched very little of modern Mm-hmm. Uh, I planned to watch the modern one on Saturday because Dylan was in and all that, but I fell asleep during the modern <laughs> portion. <laughs> I was very tired. It's defensible. And I it just wasn't as invested in Sunday, so I didn't really care to tune in for modern portion. Yeah, I mean the the cube, the cube part was really the draw of the tournament. Like, yeah, that's the part I watched. That's that's the flash and dazzle of the whole thing. I mean, it's so infrequent that I get to see people playing a high-level cube that I wanted to watch it. Yeah. Modern happens all the time. It does. And it's fun, and, and modern is interesting, but yeah, the uniqueness is certainly... The, the, like, that's the draw. And and Vintage Cube did not disappoint. No, I really enjoyed watching all of the various flavors of Vintage Cube decks just kind of coalesced. <laughs> among the two pods yeah uh mono red won the won the cube pod on day one not particularly surprising and honestly it and it just barely didn't win the pod on day two and i think mostly didn't win because of some a, a couple of uh plays that i wouldn't have made on on lucas's side of the table that's fair so, so like clearly, and, and we all know that Mono Red is really good in Vintage Cube. Like that is not a surprise. Yeah, like, well, Vintage Cube is Cube in general. I guess is a a for fun format. It's for casually. Mm-hmm. You play it for fun. You don't have to take it super seriously. You're not always trying to win. We talked a little bit about it last week, but you're you're just playing what's fun. And usually, like I can draft Mono Red. I've I've drafted Mono Red many times. But I don't look to draft Monored all the time because even though I know it's really good, I like to do other stuff in Cube, you know? There's yeah. a lot of fun stuff to do. But there's a reason we call Monored the fun police in Cube <laughs> because it is so brutally good. Yeah. When you have like an ancient tomb in your hand and your opponent starts out with a goblin guide, it's just like, <sighs> all right. I, I'm going to try to 2-1 this draft, I guess. And I think it was really clear watching... Day one, we watched... Uh, I'm going to m- miss the names, but we watched... The featured drafter in day one wasn't drafting Monored, but the person next to him was. Mm-hmm. And I was just... And they had the uh, cool setup where you can see the people next to them drafting their decks. Yeah. And I just kept looking at the Monored deck getting better and better and better. And I'm like, oh God, this blue red deck that we're watching is not going to compete. No. 
and it eventually became like a blue white deck but it who that was like a seven pixel fear cortex or something crazy it was oh he got everything he wanted like his deck was beautiful and curved out and burned his opponents and just like didn't really look close against anybody really no that's the experience i had in like my my stakes vintage cube tournament mm-hmm. i drafted a pretty good deck beat up my round one opponent then immediately lost to mono red <laughs> and it happens so fast too like you just like sit down and then like 10 minutes later it's just like oh my god i'm at zero twice like i yeah. i was ready to battle what happened yeah i died because you know red cards are messed up yeah. they kill you so fast and there are no mana problems that you ever have you like can play a really low land count deck, all your spells are gas, and your opponent has to be on point and answering everything. Yeah, I mean it's a like ultimately vintage cube is about building synergy based decks, and mono red is like the the synergy deck with the most ways that its parts are interchangeable. Like it's not an A plus B combo; it's like an A plus A plus A plus A combo, and almost all of your pieces are A's. Like. You just don't want to draw a bunch of threes and fours and you want to draw some cheap creatures and not all cheap burn spells. But like if you set the ratios of your deck appropriately, then like you show up with a powerful synergy deck that is really consistent. And occasionally you get to do something crazy like splash time walk if you get mana for it. Yep. And and that's the red deck we saw on day two. Oh, wait, was that the... That was day one. That was yeah. day one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's a different red deck that also got pretty much everything on day two right <laughs> and, and that's that's something i want to talk about too is and I, I think i messaged you about this but i think that you know and this isn't going to be iterated on very much because we're not playing high level cube very often we're not playing cube for stakes very often but i think that you can't let somebody get away with drafting the mono red deck uncontested Certainly drafting in in leagues where you have you play cross pod and stuff, hate drafting doesn't make any sense to do. But even when it was even when it's like within pod play, like in Pro Tours and stuff like that, hate drafting is not actually usually a positive win percentage choice to do, except for in like very specific circumstances. Because you have to be playing against the person that you ganked the card from and they have to like draw worse like just the odds that it actually pays off are not that good i think it might be a little bit different in some specific circumstances in cube where like at every cube table if everybody's trying to optimize for wins somebody's going to end up in mono red somebody's going to end up in mono white somebody's going to end up in mono green if that mono red player just gets it all, like their deck is almost unbeatable. And yeah, they, they wipe the tables. The only thing I've ever come close to losing to is mono red. Like that, where I felt just undisadvantaged is like mono white. That's pretty targeted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you may have to adjust. You know, if, if we're running this high stakes cube, we're iterating it over and over again you may have to adjust your strategy and say like, yeah, it is worth taking this like hell rider over this marginal playable for my deck or whatever, just to like, as long as everybody is doing a little bit of that and making sure that the mono red deck just isn't a perfect curve 
with a sulfuric vortex and all of the good burn spells like give somebody else at the table an opportunity to win like that may be a thing that you're incentivized to do actually yeah and, and that this tournament was so publicized like a lot of people were watching it this weekend like you said people know monorad and vintage cube is extremely strong mm-hmm. so now the best thing you can do against monorad is just having two people next to each other draft it yeah <laughs> like <laughs> if that's the next vintage cube tournament where everyone's like okay i want to be in monorad it's very good and then you just have two people drafting it. No, neither of those players wins, and no one has a mono red deck. Yeah, yeah, certainly the the table that ends up without just one mono red is, is going to be better off. The other players are going to be better off. And it saves people from doing weird red splashes, which is always like a side benefit to making other decks stronger. Right. <laughs> red does not play very well with most colors. Yeah, I'll, I mean, yeah, I, I mostly agree with that because they've they've tilted the the cube mm-hmm. heavily towards aggro cards and burn spells in red. Yeah, there's if you look at all the modern red cards, like non gold red cards in the cube, there's very, 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 very few you would want to play in a non modern red deck. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's there's, you know, sneak attacking through the breach. There's the like kiki and twin parts of those combos you can play a lightning bolt here or there yeah it's yeah just... flame slash and mizium mortars but like those cards also just fit into mono red so i i, I think generally like red is designed to allow for a mono red aggro deck to exist and you can design the cube if that's the, a way the wizards wants to tackle it they could design the vintage cube so that red isn't all in mm-hmm and that's something you can do. I don't know if they will do it. Yeah. I it's, doubt they will. It's a pretty classic thing to have enabled, and I think it would like rob some of the identity of the cube to like significantly weaken the existence of the, the red deck. So I think and this is me talking from like a I built cubes and maintained them and stuff like that perspective. Mm-hmm. And Wizards is just basically making a cube to put it on magic online to get money from and then that's what this tournament was they just took the cube from magic online and just put it into eight people's hands what i would do if i were doing a vintage cube tournament would be like the one justin parnell did with scg where you have a 360 card cube so you know every single card that's going to be in the cube Mm -hmm. and you curate it so that it's meant to be played at a high level Mm mm-hmm I mean, Instead it, of just like having the, uh, I don't even know how big the Magic Online Cube is, like 700 cards or something like that, 720 cards. Yeah, maybe. It's large. It has a, a high amount of variability in it. 100 entries to a page. There's 540, 540. cards in the Cube, yeah. So that's that means you don't even see every card in the right. Cube. Right, a third of the cards don't show up in the draft. Yeah, for eight people. Yeah. If if, And it's weird, too, because you don't want... Like the 540 is the perfect size of a cube to have for a magic online type of play or for like mm-hmm. paper play. My, the cube I have is 540 cards because I wanted not to have every card be available all the time. If you're going to play it a bunch of times, then yeah. yeah. Exactly. But if you're playing it once for $20,000, uh, I'd want to narrow the down, down the scope. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I mean, I see the benefit of that, but I also like for coverage and like audience engagement. Like it's cool to talk about picks in a cube that you have played before. And it's cool to watch high level players draft the cube that, you know, you've been drafting all week and talking about with your friends. And so I think losing that would, would be pretty significant. I I think you don't lose as much as you would think. Yeah. Because the fundamentals are essentially the same. It's just when you're going into the draft, you know what to expect. Yeah, maybe. I, I guess if it's from the same like pool, basically, and kind of keeps the ratios yeah. and stuff, then, then sure. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it should be at least very closely related to the cube that people are playing. But also, like... You need to give these players an opportunity to practice playing the cube. So how can you do that except by having that cube available for play on Magic Online in the weeks leading up to the tournament? Yeah, that's that's why I don't think Wizards is going to do anything with the actual cube itself. I think right. it'll just have to be player regulated. If you don't want Monored to be in the finals every time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, that's right. That's a matter of adjusting draft strategy. It, it's different from how we draft limited, but generally, you know, you don't like start hate drafting or try to like train wreck somebody else into being mono red on purpose. You know, like that's not really a part of general limited drafting, but cube is a different animal and, and requires some different strategies, I think. Um, there were some really sweet cube games as well. Uh, game two, uh, Lucas playing against Merkel. Or, or day two, I mean, Lucas playing against Merkel. His game one was really, really wonderful. It was just this, like, you know, Monored did some damage, but then got behind on board and got behind on board and got behind on board. Drew a Siege Gang Commander to, like, kind of stabilize and slow things down for a little bit. And then several turns later, drew the Chain Lightning that allowed him to deal, like, 14 damage in one turn. Just... Really per really well played to get long games out of Monored. It's nice. Yeah. Every now and then when you're not playing Monored. <laughs> yeah. I it did, you know, I I disagreed with some of his plays in game three, and in particular being really cautious with a figure of destiny that he kept in his hand rather than playing out. You know, he had Merkel's list and knew that he had a wrath in his sideboard, but it was one of those games where, like, you don't beat a Wrath anyway. In my opinion, I don't think you beat a Wrath anyways, and you need to advance your board and get as much pressure on as possible. And so at, at the end of a long day of playing high-level Magic, not everybody is going, like, it, it's very easy to make different evaluations. And I certainly don't know that my read is, is correct on that game either. But It's also harder to... Mm, it, it's very very easy to play cautiously when there's a bunch on the line yeah like you don't want to lose more than you want to win a lot of the time that that's true i've i've noticed that in myself too like it's it's much easier when i have no stakes at all when i'm watching a stream it's much easier for me to look at the board and go yeah you got to go all in here like you got to just slam and if they have it they have it and whatever and you know, usually the people that I'm with, like, will be talking about it. Like, that's what we'll agree on. It's like, yeah, of course, you just have to jam. And if if you lose, you lose. If they have the wrath, they have the wrath. But I, I definitely, when I am playing and when it's like an important something to me, yeah, that is much, much harder. I, I completely agree with that. 
it's really easy to criticize like a stream like we were just talking about mm-hmm. like seeing what saying what someone should do and if they don't do it like it's their fault but if they do it and they lose it's like you're what you think is oh well they just oh that's kind of unlucky you know right, right like it's no skin off your back yeah they made the right play and they lost like <laughs> i didn't have any stakes here so it doesn't feel bad to me like yeah but they just lost like ten thousand dollars <laughs> right uh so yeah we haven't talked about merkel's draft strategy yet which is that he mentioned before the tournament started oh did he mention this before the tournament started i didn't yes. realize he, that this is the storyline he mentioned before the tournament started that he really likes drafting black white strategies in cube like black white mid-range basically yeah and then pick one pack one he takes blade splicer over channel and he's just off he's drafting white based mid-range like that is what is happening and you know it sounds kind of crazy but then they pop up the slide with his vintage cube win percentage and he's at 73 (laughs) percent lifetime he had he had the highest among both pods yeah i mean that's an unreal cube win percentage I actually also just don't hate that pick at face value. Like mm-hmm. I've won way more with Blade Splicer than I have with Channel personally. Sure. And I'm nowhere near as good as Merkel is. <laughs> like Channel's a sweet, sexy, flashy card that's vintage power level. Mm-hmm. But it's it just doesn't lend itself to a strategy you can iterate over and over and over again. Well, you gotta get the Merkel or the Ulamog and then like the backup like mirror battle sphere as well. Yeah, and you have to have the green cards that accompany it when you don't draw channel and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And it's like you can do stuff with it. It's like clearly not a bad card at all. Mm-hmm. But when you pick Blade Splicer in that spot, you know you know what you're about, and you know exactly the strategy you're going to draft, and you're always going to have the cards for it because they're interchangeable. They're white cards. Yeah, and Blade Splicer is like at the absolute top of the heap of white mid-range cards. Like, where where Channel has a high ceiling for stuff you're doing with broken green stuff, if you're doing white mid-range stuff with some disruptive elements, like, Blade Splicer is spectacular with... uh, I mean, it's great on its own. It's a a solid ball of stats. It's really hard to attack through if they're attacking you. It's a great clock uh, against an unfair deck when it's got four power for three mana. It's great with Resto Angel and Flicker Wisp. It gives you an artifact creature for when that's relevant. It just does way more things and is probably like one of the best three mana plays in in that type of deck. It gives you two bodies if you want to get rid of one. Mm -hmm. Just for a card effect. It's it's just nice. Two bodies for equipment. Like, Mm -hmm. yep. Uh, Yeah, so that that pick, I, I think I like, I can understand that. And and if you take the channel at high stakes in a cube where people are taking it seriously like it's not that unlikely that somebody next to you took a noble hierarch first or something and like that is a main archetype that people are going to fight over and people are going to try to get into the white based mid-range deck not only is it less likely that somebody is gunning for that deck also if multiple people are drafting it you can just end up with two different types of that deck Whereas yeah, you like, could have the tokeny one versus the mid rangey one. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Whereas, you know, all the green decks want four or five one mana accelerants. Like, and if you don't get them, then your deck is a lot worse. 
and some giant payoff, some card draw in green. Like it, all the green cards just work so well together, and you want a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. That's why mono green is so good. But it's not like mono white cards work poorly together, but they are very flexible. Is something I was talking about on the last podcast. They're like more or less interchangeable. You can do, you can go a lot of different ways with them the way you can't with like even mono red. Yeah. And and vintage cube is much mid rangeier than some people give it credit for. Like the people who have played a lot of it understand how often you end up in a mid range deck with you know you don't want a bunch of doom blades in your deck, but if you can get some thoughtsies, if you get get some taxing effects, if you can get some maybe you're playing blue for some counter spells or something, then you know that that's the kind of deck that actually wins a lot in vintage cube. Yeah, I've won a lot on Vintage Cube just playing an early Garrick Wildspeaker on like turn two or something. Uh-huh. My, po- my opponent has a similar turn two play, and we just like start the game early, but we're on like turn four or five playing <laughs> mid range against each other. Right, right, exactly. Like, yeah, I have a Soul Ring, but they have a Mox, and then we're just playing like a bunch of creatures and slamming them into each other. Yeah, well, look, there's my uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor being attacked by a three drop. I mean, this is turn two, but this is just a normal game. Right, it's just a normal game. <laughs> the other pick that was controversial as well was in pack three, taking Elspeth, Sun's champion, over a Mana Crypt. I think that is less crazy than you would think as somebody who has died to Mana Crypt flips many times, honestly. Yeah, I... Mana Crypt's a very good card, but I do not like drafting it very often. Mm-hmm. It's not Soul Ring. As, it's so yeah, much it's, worse than Soul Ring. Like, it's nowhere close to Soul Ring. Soul Ring lets you play the game early and long. Mm-hmm. Mana Crypt just lets you play the game early. Yeah. <laughs> and it forces you to put yourself on a timer very early in the game. And if you draw it late, it's obviously garbage. You can never play it. Uh, the only time I like Soul Ring is in like the Golosi or Academy Ruins Emery style artifacty strategies. Because you can get rid of it so easily and just turn it into other stuff. Like, yeah. I think that's where Mana Crypt is really, really, really strong. And if it's used as an accelerant, I only really like it in Mono Red. Um, it, yeah, it's really good in Storm, too. Oh, sure, 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 yeah. When, like, Mono Red and Storm, when the game is over. Yeah, wait, and, and you also, you can hold your Mana Crypt until turn four and then use it as part of your, you know, your turn. But, yeah. um. And this is not to say that it was definitely right for for him to take six mana planeswalker it, over mana crypt. There, that's it not did what I'm surprise saying. Surprise me, yeah. When it when it happened, it did surprise me. I'm like, oh, hmm. I that's a six mana planeswalker. I mean, I don't know if I'm likely to play mana crypt in this deck, but I don't know if I was playing Elspeth. Right, and also the likelihood that Elspeth, or at least the the solid possibility that Elspeth wheels as opposed to mana crypt which certainly never would but merkel knows how these decks that he's building play play out and yeah his deck didn't look ideal for a mana crypt at the time he did pick up several cards over the course of pack three that are fantastic to mana crypt out and a bunch of his hands would have been better if he had drawn a mana crypt at the end of the day i think it is not clear whether or not mana crypt is you know a, a good pick there i i think the point is basically just just a couple of things like number one 
it's closer than you would think. Like, yes, Mana Crypt is a classically broken card. If you're able to play it in a constructed deck, then it is a complete pile of nonsense. If your deck is already a bunch of, you know, kind of grindy creatures that, like, JMM's deck was not trying to end the game particularly quickly, like, it's putting pressure on and stuff, but it's not it's not done by turn four every game or anything like that. It, that that's just not what it was doing. The The card becomes a lot worse than your like platonic ideal mana crypt situation. Uh, and also even at a high level, it, it, it seems to me that there's something to the idea that like cube is an intensely personal experience of playing magic. Like, JMM knows how to draft those decks and he's doing that to the best of his ability and it has paid off over and over and over in drafts and while taking the mana crypt there may have been right for other people it might not be right for him to do that yeah I that kind of is at odds with what I think which mm -hmm. is that uh, so I agree it was personal I, I think that's indisputable but I don't know if once you Put a bunch of prize money on the line if you can't figure out the format and in this case that kind of corresponds to him just playing what he knows and is practiced and i think that's perfectly fine but i don't know that it's especially when you're on such an underdeveloped archetype like mm -hmm. this white mid-range strategy that no one's really playing ever i don't know that it's like 100 percent correct that he can just do whatever he wants because he's practiced it mm -hmm. it like maybe you mana crypt is just right like and it doesn't matter that it's his preference not to do it does that make sense yeah i mean i understand that but like my response to that is i don't actually think you can optimize for like pure objective win rate in vintage i just don't think there's any way to test that out you can't play these vintage cube matches you know you can queue as many times as you want to but you're not going to be playing pods where all seven other people are playing as though this is a for a $20,000 prize. So there's so much like lost in the translation there that you may be best served once you get to the point of, hey, I got to win this pod, this cube pod. You may be best served by, you know, playing the thing that's familiar to you in the best way that you possibly can in the way that you know how like using those little bits of knowledge and stuff to your advantage like those may end up being a bigger deal than you know having I, just because i think it is impossible to come up with the the same sort of objective understanding of win rates and stuff that that we can come closer to in limited formats and certainly in constructed a cube is just a different thing sure but it's it's still a draft like you if you really liked playing blue pile and vintage cube mm -hmm. everyone else does too so even though that's what you know the best and are right. gonna like try to draft towards that oh you're sure. not gonna have the same level of success as the person who likes their white decks right right no yeah i i definitely agree with that and I, yeah no i'm not yeah i'm probably not saying it well, I'm not saying that you should just draft the deck that you like every time or anything like that, uh, but I, I, I am saying that, like, your personal cube philosophy, and that's not just, like, 
I like the blue decks. That's like, here's my general pick order. Here's like how I move from one thing to another. Your overall cube philosophy might be different from somebody else's. And that doesn't mean that you could like swap philosophies and probably both of you then get worse win rates overall if you're trying to like follow the the notes of somebody else, basically. Uh, yeah, I, I I agree with that for sure. You, you have to have a very clear idea of what you want to do, especially mm-hmm. when everything can go so south so quickly, like you can in draft. Yeah. But anyways... Cube is really cool. I am hesitant to say give us more high stakes cube because part of it being special is that it never happens and when it does, it's really cool. So I would be down. It, it's weird because the vintage cube is the most popular one, but I would rather see other cubes. Yeah. Like the Legacy Cube or some of the other Magic Online ones. Yeah, I mean, it would be neat to have like a cube league sort of thing just that plays different cubes, the, the, like the different Moto cubes and has some coverage and some stakes. Like, there could just be something a limited a limited pro tour but it's cube sure i'm down <laughs> I, I would be very down for that it, if especially if people have to play from home anyways you just run it on magic online yeah i mean they have run one run uh draft pro tours before so mm-hmm. i'm sure they can figure out a non multiple of eight which they can't for arena <laughs> yes i'm sure that they can do that but yeah Anyways, it, it won't happen, but it would be cool if it did. It would be so cool. Wow, so we talked about the mocks for a while, I guess because Cube was a big part of it, so that was easy uh, to talk yeah, about. Yeah, that's like, we don't get to talk about Cube very often, so we've got the, the on-topic. An excuse to. <laughs> yeah. I do want to dive into Pioneer a little bit just to kind of give us an overview of the format. The next Mana Traders tournament is going to be Pioneer, so I think it would be good to take a look at that. We're not going to take a look at pioneer next week because the same weekend as our mana traders tournament is the pro tour and so we're gonna have nick price on who is friend of the show i have interviewed him before he qualified for the lotus box invitational and he is a a player from the philippines who is queued for this and we're going to talk to him about the standard and historic formats in preparation so that's what we're going to do next week so this week i just wanted to do a little bit of pioneer before the mana traders just a brief little overview yeah nothing too special and it's not going to be anything up to the minute because we don't have this weekend's challenges (laughs) available to us but no one does wizard stopped publishing all tournament data after march 10th (laughs) i assume they'll be back eventually there wasn't like an announcement that's like we're not giving you deck lists anymore that this this is, I'm sure is a Gremlins thing. Yeah, probably. I, I'm sure we won't. We might never get the intervening deckless days, but oh no no no, those are definitely gone forever. Yeah, I even tried to look for people who like scrape the challenges for data. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find the the challenges for Pioneer. Mm. Well, we can look at last week's, which is probably still our best source of. But, yeah, it's not too far off from what people are doing in the format. Yeah. It's got all the decks people play. Right. So I think to start off, there is a healthy or unhealthy portion of the metagame that's just soup, mid-range soup. Whether it's Niv-Mizzet decks or like four-color stuff, I think like a, a big one there is the Fires 
Luca or fires transmogrify decks. There, there's like three, mo- like mostly Yorion decks. Mm-hmm. There's the Niv Visit one. That's just the Invisit Reborn. Stop everyone's scene. Yeah. The Transmogrify slash Luca. I've seen up to eight of that effect. I've seen up to four. Mm. But the idea is just like the standard Luca decks where you have Fire the Dimension and you Transmogrify and Aid of Treachery and you do your stuff. Yeah. And the other pile that has been having an uptick recently is the uh, Enigmatic Incarnation piles. Yeah, I'm looking at that one right now. Uh, I don't have one like right in front of me, but I have seen many, many deck lists over the last couple of weeks that are just like four Path of the World Tree and a pile of dreams. Yeah, I gotta say, I believe that this list goes too deep on the tutor targets for Enigmatic Incarnation. This list is going going from three mana on up. One Archon of Emeria, one Deputy of Detention, one Glass Pool Mimic, one Knight of Autumn, one Luris of the Dream Den, one Renegade Rallyer, two Skyclave Apparition, one Trophy Mage, one Archon of Sun's Grace, one Blood Baron of Viscopa, one Cavalier of Dawn, one Kenrith the Return King, one Scarab God, one Tolsamir Friend of Wolves, and one Yarak the Desecrated. I believe that we could trim a couple of those. I think if you have to... Basically, if your card didn't see play in standard, it probably shouldn't be in your pioneer you're, deck. You're unlikely to tutor it up. Yeah, you keep the Scarab God. Maybe you can keep Tolzimir. I don't probably yeah. not. Well, Tolzimir serves like a specific purpose, which is stabilize me and gain me some life. Like I can see keeping Tolzimir in there. Does that deck have Wolf Haven? Because Tolzimir is a nice combo with Wolf Haven. Ooh, yeah, extra wolves and yeah. But yeah, these these decks are these enigmatic incarnation decks are pretty cool and very functional just because they're four to five color nonsense piles. And weirdly enough, Pioneer, the closer you are to five colors, the better your mana is. Because <laughs> this isn't a fetch land and shock land format. So if you're just allowed to play uh like spend mana to play Path of the World Tree and, and Triomes and stuff like that. Right. You're way served to just spread out your color pips a bunch than if you were to play like a two-color ally color deck. Your mana's like better. <laughs> right. Once you've made the sacrifice of, okay, I'm going to... Well, it's, it was the same thing with like energy. Energy had the best mana in the format because it had access to a tune with Ether and obviously the, the energy land, but... Like, Attune with Ether was a huge, huge part of that. Once you make the sacrifice of, I'm going to cast a spell that gets me mana, then your mana gets way, way better, and you can just play a million colors. Which is kind of why most of these five-color mid-range decks exist. And Enigmatic Carnation is, like, the most... We're just putting a pile of cards here and interacting with our opponent and just got a secondary engine thing that's going to do good enough to push me towards the finish line. Okay, this is making me furious. Why? The trophy mage can only get the one of bow of Nylia in this deck. Tro- There's a trophy mage in there, that deck. Yeah, that well, that's one of the ones I read off, and I was trying to figure this out, and then I found the bow of Nylia is the only artifact. No, I'm, I'm, I'm set on that. We don't I, need to go that deep. <laughs> I believe if I were to register, I ne- I don't like to change decks before I run them in a league. This one I would. I'd, I'd take out the trophy mage and the the bow of Nylia first. We just don't know if the bow of Nylia is critical to the game, though. I mean, it's it, an enchantment. 
it can kill off some spirits if they don't have a lord out yet. You can you can get it with your trophy mage, play mm-hmm. it, and then pot it away into what's a bad four drop they're playing? Yeah, I mean I guess that's that's what it's doing. Pot it into an Archon of Sun's Grace. That's, that's the, a good one. That's the only four drop. Oh, that's disappointing. Well <laughs> so maybe that's it. Maybe that allows you to to but you have to like cast i don't know maybe that maybe that's what it's doing it's it's helping you get the archon of sun's grace when you need it i don't think you play that many fours because there are very few three mana enchantments in the deck it's a lot of two mana enchantments and four mana enchantments yeah they're i i don't know what the three mana enchantments are in the format but i don't know if they're any worth playing i mean there's a lot of good two mana ones there's different lists that are doing different things uh like i i've i've seen lists running like several of the raven's warnings and stuff like this particular list is all twos and fours which i think is closer to being right i guess oath of kai is a three drop you could oh that's true oath of kai is very good yeah i don't know if the list you have in five years playing it yeah this is not one of those but but yeah any like i think generally yeah there are a few different things you can be doing with your like many colored soup deck uh, a lot of them involve fires they could involve niv mizzet your engine could be niv mizzet or it could be enigmatic incarnation it could just be uh, you know your mostly yorian value stuff i've seen a lot of asika's chariots that card has seen so much more play than i ever would have imagined yeah i mean that card is really really good in pioneer yeah because it's so good with yorian and wainuda as well yeah it just gives you so much stuff to like it's hard to attack these decks because you want to like slam Grafdicker's Cage against like Wynota, for example, or um, Transmogrify. Mm-hmm. And it helps that the Asika's Chariot lets you not only just like chump block a bunch if that's if you're game one just trying to buy time, but it's a giant four four that makes creature tokens, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it goes wide. So if they're trying to like block you out and you can get value with Yorion, it's just it fits in with a really nicely into the, like these decks. Right, and it also fills a slot that, like, otherwise you might have to play a removal spell there, but it's never dead in the matchups where removal spells are dead. You yeah. cast it and you get some threats. And I have also seen it with Mythos of Iluna, which is adorable. I have not seen that, but it is adorable. So if, you, if you're not as quick on the uptake, if you Mythos copying Asika's Chariot, and then you crew your Asika's Chariot you can attack with it and copy the copied Asika's Chariot and you can just keep making more tokens which keep making more cats. So until you get just an army of cats and chariots and yeah, that'll overwhelm any board position pretty quickly. Yeah, Mythos Luna is not that bad of a card since it can copy anything. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to fit into these decks, especially since you usually want... It's, like, not, a, most... it's not a permanent on its own yeah like you can't blink that token that it makes so there's like restrictions there like you're only really interested in the Sika's chariot aluna stuff if you're already a transmogrify deck Mm -hmm. and those decks already have like this yorion game plan baked into them as they're honestly kind of their plan a and you don't really need mythos of aluna to be involved in that yeah it is really cute though i know Corey b was playing some of it in standard sultai (laughs) <laughs> and like he made it look kind of good on stream but i think it's actually like not very good 
It just requires, it's really hard to beat once it starts going, but you, that's kind of like a, uh, how many times you draw Mythos of Aluna and you just didn't have a good target for it. Right. I mean, yeah, like how many times did you draw Mythos of Aluna in the mirror? Like, shoot, this didn't, this, this didn't go to plan. It is really good against Lovestruck Beast decks, though. Oh, yes. <laughs> just having Lovestruck Beast is good against Lovestruck Beast decks. Well, and you also get a you get to kill their edge wall keeper at the same time so yeah if you're if your mana is great yeah other than that other than the yorian five color nonsense decks we've got just classic pioneer normal aggro mid-range stuff there's a bunch of uh auras have auras i think it's just the best auras deck people are playing blue white auras too you see those every now and then for What's it called? Staggering Insight? Is that the name yeah. of the card? Yeah, I mean, the Blue White Auras deck is a little different because it's a it's an Ophidian deck rather than a make-a-giant-guy kind of deck. Yeah, the problem with the Blue White one, though, is it doesn't play Thoughtseize, which yeah. is just the best card in the format, so... <laughs> yeah, I have seen one or two green lists because Glade Cover Scout is actually Pioneer, Pioneer legal. legal. That's, yeah. that's But it, green doesn't really give you much else, like... Like, you know, it gives you some auras or whatever. It doesn't contribute meaningfully to the game plan, except that Glade Cover Scout is a better target for this stuff than other things. Do these decks you have have seen playing, like, Basara Tower Archer or whatever it's called? The Shroud 2-drop? No, I haven't seen that anymore because I think it's just, like, too bad of a card. Like, here, here's a Selesnya Auras deck. This is just the only green cards... Okay, it's got Season of Growth as the other green card in the main deck. So Which that's... is the enchantment that whenever you target one of your stuff, you draw a card? Yeah, yeah. That's something, but overall, to me, seems much, much weaker than playing Thoughtseize. Yeah, Thoughtseize is messed up. Yeah. Most of these decks don't even play it in the main deck, but that doesn't... Like, you just... That's an aura deck, right? You just play it really hard, really fast game one, because it's hard to interact with you. Mm-hmm. And then in games two, you get to bring in all your thought pieces and just rip them apart. Right. Right. And I mean, the the conceit, the reason you show up with Orzhov Auras is because you believe like, hey, there's a healthy number of creature decks in the metagame. And then when I play against the Niv-Mizzet decks, I'll bring in the thought seizes. But I'm playing this deck to beat the creature decks. I, I also like the, I don't know the name of this card. It's the one, two enchantment creature that whenever one of your enchanted things dies you draw a card yeah hateful eidolon yeah hateful eidolon i i like that card quite a bit it's just got a lot of value with all the glitters and ethereal armor like a ton of value you just start hitting so fast and you get those first strike bait break points so easily yeah and then when you get the matchups where your dead weights are good and you have yeah. hateful eidolon dead weight hateful eidolon Luris, it's just game over they can't come back from it nope it's too bad that that is just not good and standard. There's too much stuff that like Deadweight isn't remotely playable against. I mean, it's like that in Pioneer Two sometimes, right? Because I mean, of all the, the giant mid range decks, it's just that when you board in all your Deadweights, you right. have the chance to live the dream. <laughs> right, right, right. And and in, I mean, in standard, it's just like you can't build a main deck for hate, hateful eidolon to live in it's just that if you were post board against a creature deck you could really get them but that <laughs> it doesn't work uh, but oh yeah auras have auras mono black you see you see gruel and winota has actually been relatively recent addition to pioneer people are really figuring out the 
kind of his mana bases and a Seekus Chariot stuff, because the three-color mana base is not ideal. You're pretty much a red-green deck splashing going out of Yeah, I mean, the Pathways, I think, are a huge addition to these decks, honestly. Like, just having extra, like, comes into play untapped lands of exactly the colors that you need allied or enemies like we got the full set of 10 and i think that has really helped the mana bases of these decks i, I also like that everyone is playing opter engineer now for the <laughs> one decks because that is a nice little human that also makes a hasty thopter yeah it's really overperformed in its limited format yes that's true and it's just you're not trying to like Winota into uh, Agent of Treachery or anything. Everyone's just playing Angrath's Marauders and Kenrith. Mm -hmm. And you just play Winota very early with Elvish Mystic and Lanor Elves, which trigger Winota, so they're very good. And then you just put into play like Bonecrusher Giant or Angrath's Marauders. No, you can't look at Bonecrusher Giant, but you uh, you just put in Angrath's Marauders or like a Thopter Engineer or whatever and just attack yeah. with large amounts of power. And Pioneer's not a format that. There's like one deck playing a sweeper, and it's just Niv Mizzet. <laughs> Everyone else is not. <laughs> right. Man, there's so just... no way that Immerstrom Raider is the best you can do here. I just what is Immerstrom Raider? That's the 2-1 from Kaldheim that you rummage when it enters the battlefield. Oh, did you find an Immerstrom Raider in a yeah. Wynota deck? Yeah, I'm looking at... This is Joao, actually. Andrade? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, I found it. Let's see. Yeah, this is not my favorite. No. The... I don't think you need your... You don't really need a two-drop human, is the thing. Like, you no. want to skip your turn, too. No, I mean, this isn't a human. This is a demon. It's a demon? Yeah. What? Oh, wow. So that's certainly, like, part of the recipe here. Huh, okay. I guess it's just for... I thought it was a human. That's my bad. Sure. I guess it's just to try to get Winota more reliably. Yeah, I mean, you're just digging towards Winota and Eldritch Evolution. I think it's a concession to, like, if I don't draw one of those, I probably am not strong enough to win most games because I'm drawing, like, Thopter Engineers and things like that. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just play a bunch of Elvish Mist. Joe also cut Elanor Elves from this deck, which is wild to me. Well, when you're putting in more two drops, I guess it becomes a little bit less and you can get flooded on on elves like yeah you can but with uh eldritch evolution and mm -hmm. like just playing good three drops like bone crusher giant it just you can play like a reasonable game yeah. even if winota is not involved and you won't win a huge percentage of those but you'll have enough time to like draw a haymaker uh speaking of that concept of like one into three Slater Aid, top eight of the Pioneer Challenge on that's the Sunday one. This is Gruel, Gruel Obosh, just odds. So you got eight ones, you got 10, 14, you know, 15 threes, eight fives. Just, you know, go one, three, five, or go one, three, and then you know try to do something on your four mana turn and then slam a five on your your fourth turn like that's the plan that's what this deck is doing yeah my favorite is the crater's claws and the kiora mm -hmm. you can uh make a token by untapping your goldspan dragon <laughs> to give you two mana and then cross them out oh yeah 
Yeah, minusing Kiora on Goldspan Dragon, that's adorable. Yeah, that's that's nice right there. That is nice. Run a couple of great henges. I don't know, it's neat. It, it's it's a rejection of it's saying like, you know, collected company actually isn't that good in these girl decks. Like you really just want to be slamming threats every turn. You don't want to have a chance of missing. And these dragons are good enough to make up for that. This is a four glory bringer, four gold span dragon deck. I, I kind of love the commitment inherent in this list. I, I also like that it's just big beefy dudes and not playing a bunch of rabble masters. Mm-hmm. Because those do get overwhelmed by it pretty quickly if your opponent has any board presence. Mm-hmm. Especially if you draw a legion. Uh, I forgot the name of it. <laughs> Warboss? Legion Warboss? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Legion Warboss. Like, if you have Legion Warboss instead of Rebel Master, mm-hmm. it's really hard to punch through blockers. Rebel Master doesn't have that problem, but you, you lose your Rebel Master. Right. And this with, format with... seems really creature heavy. It is, yeah. Even the five-color nonsense decks play a bunch of permanents. Yeah. I mean, if if you're on exactly the the polymorph type of soup deck, then you have fewer creatures, but you have like a fair number of token generators, including like lots of Asika's chariots, which is like that's a fine response to a rebel master type of creature. Yeah, those decks usually play a couple of sleepers here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think rebel masters would be good against that deck specifically, but in the format as a whole. When everyone's playing to the board so much, I I like the approach of just not bothering with it, just playing like efficient right. haste creatures. Right, right. And it, yeah, and I'm saying like that's kind of the only deck that we've seen in all of this that you would just be like, yeah, I want Ravel Master. Like pretty much everything else is like, yeah, I don't, I don't this isn't a Ravel Master kind of format. No. I don't love main deck Clothis in this kind of deck though. I think it's just like kind of not super reliable often kind of taking a turn off where you just want to be slamming some monster, you know, obviously like acknowledging that bone crusher giant and girl spellbreaker are better because those are both four of and Clothis is only a two of, but I'm not in love with Clothis. I'm not sure like what's better. Yeah. It's already maxed out on spellbreakers, bone crushers and love struck beasts. And there just may not be anything better for that spot, but. I mean, it kind of surprises me. There's not, like Lovestruck Beast or even just a, another Ronus to get the Great Henge out a little no, earlier. It, but... This list does have Lovestruck Beast. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I just, I, w- I whiffed on it. Okay. But yeah, maybe like Steel Leaf Champion or something. I don't want to play Steel Leaf Champion in a deck with six mountains in it. Yeah, that's fair. Like the only deck that Pioneer has that Steel Leaf Champion in it is the Black Green, like Collected Company one, which I saw. It, it won a prelim the other day and it had the boast demon that like d- that vampire tutors when you attack with it mm-hmm. which is a wild card to see in a, <laughs> a prelim money deck yeah because it's only got two power like that that whole deck's thing is just to put like 11 power into play with collected company on turn three yeah that is really strange i yeah it is it is crazy like I mean, I, I remarked specifically earlier, like, yeah, man, Pathways were really helpful for Naya to help to get that mana base where it needs to be. But yeah, looking at this list is a reminder, like, yeah, Pioneer is a kind of long-spanning format, but the only ally-colored duels that come into play untapped are Pathways and Shocklands. That's it. That You got to run Basics as the rest of your Gruel deck. We're still waiting on those Copperline Gorges. Who knows when those will be here? Yeah, and honestly, like, I think that makes the mana of this deck not very good. Copperland Gorge? 
I, I mean, it, Copperline Gorge would make it good right now. Oh, with, I see what you're saying. With eight duels, you know, you have to have an untapped green source on turn one. Your turn two, the majority of time, you have to have a red source. And then your fives each cost double red. And pathways, you know, if you had to play a pathway as a green source for your elf, like that's not making red mana for your goldspan dragon. So... Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's happening too often, though. Like, it's a concern, but there's 15 green sources on turn one you have, right? Eight plus seven. And the chances of you having a four, like a crack crown pathway and a, just a forest, mm-hmm. you're not going to keep a one lander. Right, right. I But I, I just like, because of the double red requirements and stuff, like, I, I'm sure that it comes up given that this is only a 23 land deck, you know? So it's just kind of awkward. Like the man is fine, but it's not as good as you would expect from a two color deck in what is like technically an eternal format. Yeah. Pioneer's mana is significantly worse than moderns by a huge margin. Yeah. And Gruul was just really like, yeah, people played Gruul, but yeah, man, that mana base was really bad when it didn't have a pathway. Like, holy crap. So I'm glad that you can do it now defensively. Other than that, what else What else does Pioneer have to offer? Bring Delighting for Valky is very good. It's extremely powerful. So that's a huge benefit that the Niv-Mizzet decks have that other decks don't. I guess there's also the like Black-Red Arcanist deck and the uh, like the Jun Sacrifice decks. Those mm-hmm. are both two big ones in Pioneer. Both just like mid-range Black-Red decks with some sort of engine aspect. Yeah. Yeah, and they... They seem to get categorized as this. Uh, I'm just not seeing any sacrifice decks, I guess. I'm mostly seeing the Arcanist decks. There's a sacrifice deck in 10th of the first one. Oh, there yeah. we go. Yeah. Yep. Then this looks pretty normal. We've seen like. Oh, this is a Citadel list. All of the. Uh, yeah, pretty much all the sacrifice decks in Pioneer are Citadel decks. Okay, cool. I actually don't remember the last time I saw a sacrifice deck in Pioneer that wasn't bolus citadel based okay because that was not you know citadel was a thing for a, a little while and then it became not a thing and i guess now now we're back to that it's just so strong with the engine of like Zulfork, cutthroat and catacomb sifter right like it's just really nice especially with catacomb sifter because you can scry mm-hmm. yeah and i mean it was really important when field of the dead was around like that's how you killed the field of the dead decks is you landed bolus citadel and you killed them with it obviously not a thing we have to deal with but yeah I, I guess that given like the soup decks in the format the removal heavy decks like you want that big punch that's just like we got to turn five or we got to turn whatever you left me with a lanoir elves tap all of my lands play a bolus of citadel you can get as much value as you want but this is going to kill you it's honestly like the perfect deck if you like playing mid-range decks, but you also just want to be able to win every game with a single top deck. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's a lot of the times I like to play deck. I like having, all right, I'm extremely behind here. I just need to draw one card that can take me out of it. Yeah. I, I like having like a Bolus of Citadel that can do that in an otherwise just like very functional mid-range engine deck. Yeah. On the other hand, you've got the red-black, basically just straight-up mid-range deck. Uh, you can play Young Pyromancer or Village Rights. You cannot. Uh, it's just straight up black red. Uh, Kroxa, Magmatic Channeler, all, all the red removal, black removal stuff you think of. Yeah, I mean, this deck is definitely fine. 
I I don't like it personally. I it's a fine deck. Yeah, it's... it hasn't impressed me when it plays against stuff like auras, unless they're drawing like a lot of thoughtsies in the early turns. Right, and that's actually one thing that I didn't point out about the Enigmatic Incarnation deck is. Uh, you are playing Trial of Ambition in those decks. And if you play against Auras and you have Trial of Ambition, like, that's pretty nice. Although I guess they do protect their guys with, you know... They have a lot more creatures than, like, modern Boggles. Right, does. right. So, it, like, it's but, nice, but it's not breaking or anything like that. It's usually just, like, a a combo. You pair it up with a removal spell, and then you trial their, their large thing. Right. It keeps Karametra's Blessing from protecting their thing. It, it yes. doesn't keep you know, selfless savior from protecting their thing or Alciot or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Do you see one vampire's deck? Soren too strong. It's just mono black. Soren's very, very good. <laughs> that That's kind of... Pioneer is a, a format right now where everyone's just playing whatever they want because mm -hmm. it hasn't really coalesced. I would have loved to see the data from... Like, this is a week old. I, I looked at this last week. Yeah. I, I would have loved to see data from this week. There was a... I, had, I looked at a couple Lotus decks because those are the decks I really like. And there's just the normal one, the the one everyone's seen with Balog and Recovery to get Peer into the Abyss to, like, kill them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that, that's a nice one. <laughs> it's just a the normal four Dig Through Time combo deck in the format. I saw one in a prelim... That was just blue red with Burgie and Baral. Ooh. And it played none of the wish cards. It was just a bunch of cantrips to get Aetherflux Reservoir and draw your deck with uh, Valkyrie Awakening mm -hmm. and approach to the second sun. Like you can either win with Approach to the Second Sun or Aetherflux Reservoir. Okay. With Burgie or Baral making your spells cheap enough that you can go through your deck really easily. Yeah, yeah. And and just like a lot of the red digging spells. Yeah, because if you have either Brawl or Virgie in play, you can draw enough cards and generate enough mana to start doing the next thing. Mm -hmm. And if you ever draw a second copy of Virgie, you can play the Horn, and then you just can't whiff from there. Right. It's so hard. This isn't the, uh, oh, what's it called? Is it Bag of Holding? Yeah, it's not a Bag of Holding. It's not, it's not the Bag of Holding list. No, it, it's not even green at all. It has zero green cards in it. It's straight up blue red. Mm -hmm. There's no Arboreal Grazers. There's no Sylvan's Grind. It's. Why? Well, well, the bag of holding lists that I've seen were like mono red Bergy decks or something like that. So. Oh, wow. No, I haven't seen that. <laughs> <laughs> this is an M20 artifact that people always thought was better than it actually was, but it stores all your discarded cards and then you get to put them back in your hand eventually so the, the for some exorbitant mana cost yeah but if you've gotten a bunch of mana back from whatever if you've generated mana with burgies and steamkins is is the idea then you can get them back and and really go off so it stores your cathartic reunion and tormenting voice cards i obviously this isn't like a real thing but it's real cute i mean that would require me to play like tormented voice in my deck mm -hmm. i'm not in for that yeah you can play thrill of possibilities i've played tormented voice and standard before i mean i've never played thrill of possibilities and it was horrible mm -hmm. I, I regretted it yeah yeah it's not a great card it's pretty bad cathartic okay. is good i'd like that one cathartic that is nice. good but i i prefer to play it in decks where like if you get it spell pierced it's like well okay like I, it still did half of its job 
Yeah. yeah exactly. That's kind of it for an overview. I just wanted to highlight that people should work on Burgie stuff more because Burgie's sweet. I think Burgie is busted and will start eventually. I think Burgie is difficult, but busted and eventually will show up in most formats. Yeah. It's it's kind of like the uh, Underworld Breach in Modern. Eventually that card will get banned. I don't know when it'll be. Right. But it, it will be banned. And immediately following the Mox Opal unban. But uh, yeah, if we're lucky, that'd be great. <laughs> If they ever announce that, like, Mox Opal Faith Slitting is unbanned, that announcement has to have, oh, by the way, Underworld Bridge is also banned. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think that that's true. Um, I, I saw a, a tweet, I think Wombo Combo was talking about it on Twitter today, mentioning that, like, hey, Mox Opal unbanned, I think, would be really good for the format. And I, I don't know that it would break Underworld Breach because that deck would still be vulnerable to the same things. But I think a really important point that you made about the deck is one of its biggest vulnerabilities is a speed vulnerability where like prowess is a bad matchup for it because it's prowess is really fast. And you add Mox Opal to a deck, all of a sudden that deck is a lot faster. So I I, I don't know exactly what would happen, but I have a feeling that Breach would be very, very good. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's too hard of a call. Yeah. Uh do we have a Patreon question? So for a question this week, uh, Mike Braverman asks, what's the weirdest place you've ever played a competitive game of Magic? I don't have a super specific place in mind as like being really weird. Uh, I, I did find the mall PTQs to be like really off-putting and strange a lot of the time. Like this was a a really normal thing. None of my... LGSs were ever mall stores, but you didn't really have any choice where you played when you were traveling around for PTQs. And there's always that one store that's in a mall, and then there's obviously not enough seating inside the store in the mall, but there were there were always like tables and chairs outside in the mall proper. And so people are walking around doing their shopping and you're just sitting there playing in a PTQ. And I I really didn't like doing that. That was just awful. I I remember playing one of the uh, Star City used to have like state like stages of IQs. They didn't all used to be in local stores. The varying degrees of largeness to them. Mm -hmm. And one of the ones was Cape Fear hosted it, but they hosted it in like Cary Town Center uh -huh. or like some food some food court. Uh huh. And it was just the whole food court. It was just a bunch of Magic players. There's no food things open i don't remember what was going on that day but it was like kind of a shutdown part of the place mm -hmm. and we were just kind of playing at these tables that are clearly not meant to be played games on they're just way too small <laughs> and i played an entire tournament with like an unplayable um blue green mid-range deck years before blue green's a playable color combination <laughs> <laughs> i think scars and Mirrodin was the most recently released set mm -hmm. uh, yep yeah so not not only playing in a mall but playing in like an abandoned mall yeah <laughs> it's it was bizarre that's not the weirdest place i've played in though what is uh, the weirdest place you played in for a long time there was a a ptq in south carolina that was just held out of a dojo so <laughs> <laughs> 
there would be like just random tables set up in the dojo uh-huh. and it'd be like all the mats and stuff are all there and it's just we're clearly not in a place where you're supposed to be playing cards uh-huh. <laughs> that's also not the weirdest place okay keep going uh there was i think in virginia either virginia or georgia i know those are different places i've only been there once it was some random store that was having renovation done so only half of the store was available and it was very small it was a very small store there might have been like 10 tables in the thing and it was a ptq back in the area of the era of ptqs where they were very large mm-hmm. and you had to like win the whole thing to get a qualification <laughs> that was the only way to get it this is before like they fed into our ptqs and stuff like that it was just like a one and done tournament winner takes the ptq invite so there were like 170 people or 100 people or however many it was this tiny store that only had 10 tables it's clearly not going to work so luckily there was a furniture store next door that was completely functional oh right (laughs) so we took the upstairs of that furniture store so you had to walk outside the door go around the building across this tiny little street go into the furniture store walk upstairs to like pretty much kind of like an attic but it had a bunch of tables in it. You could play games. It was not very well lit, but that's how it worked. Like you got you got your pairings at the main store, which had no room for people to be in. So it was really like fifty people inside, and then everyone else was outside waiting to hear like where they were supposed to be. Yeah, because some people could play inside, some people could play in the uh, the furniture place. <laughs> and it was just so you would go get your pairings, push through your crowd of people. Figure out you're playing in the furniture store, go to the furniture store, cross the street, walk up the thing, play in the attic. Sometimes your opponent gets there. Sometimes they just have no idea where they are. So, you know, there was a whole thing there. Isn't that, didn't that place like not have air conditioning in the furniture store? Oh, no, it definitely did not. Yeah. (laughs) It was like, I think like winter ish, Mm -hmm. spring, winter. So it wasn't that bad, but it was very stuffy because it was a, a million people in there. Yeah. I guess I've also had, so when I was living in Western North Carolina, the store selection was not the same as when you're in more populated areas. So the two stores near me, there was one in like one of those big prefabricated like sheet metal buildings on the side of the highway and the other stores in the like, like this was just like an exit off of the highway and all there really was was a gas station a pizza place that was like connected to the gas station and then this couple of stores in a big sheet metal building and it was a magic store a vape shop and a sex toy store and that's all there was there uh and then the other store that i went to out there for like a pptq was in a stall in a flea market that was like covered and like kind of had walls but it clearly wasn't like a building that had been constructed up to a building code and then inspected. (laughs) It was like, you know, we had some stuff. So we put up walls and a roof and like somebody's uncle put in power outlets very much in a flea market. So kind of interesting, the stores that you find out there. (laughs) That's pretty nice. I wish I had played Magic at some like weirder locations too, because I, I didn't travel that far to to go play Magic. Yeah, I mean, and and none of these are like super weird. 
you know, this isn't like playing it on that jet that like gives you the feeling that you're in space or something. You know, there's no like, <laughs> wow, we really shouldn't be playing magic in this location. This is like explicitly dangerous or anything like that. I felt like I shouldn't be in the uh, that convention center in Cornelius or whatever, North Carolina, oh. when they labeled as SCG Charlotte that one time. <laughs> yeah, that was horrible. It, it felt like it was the perfect place to just get murdered and no one would find out. Correct. <laughs> yes. And then finding a place to stay around there was awful, too, because like it's not a place that people go to. So there weren't like Airbnbs or hotels or anything, really. Yeah, I don't. I just stayed with people because it was not that far from Charlotte. Yeah. Honestly, King of Prussia is a weird place to play magic. Playing magic in the basement of a casino is just odd. It's like a weird feeling. You feel like the desperation and sadness of the people in the floor above you just kind of pressing down, destroying the Wi-Fi so you can't check pairings. Like, it's, you know, it's not a good place. It's not a place for healthy, happy people. So I actually don't mind it. Which is a like a bold call. Yeah, that's like when I'm actually in the basement of the Valley Forge Casino Resort with the other Magic players just playing Magic. I'm actually having a good time. I like don't mind the area at all. It's not that bad because I actually am one of the few people on the internet. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> but the moment you step upstairs, it's terrible. It's so bad, right? Because there's just so many other people there who are I don't want to be associated with worse than the magic players somehow and i i don't want to uh be in that area at all like it's just valley forge so far away from anything you want to be going towards like why did we drive from philly to this place yes a real city with food and things to do yeah but the actual basement of the casino resort i'm fine with it it's perfectly fine it's just Everything above it is terrible. Which you have to walk through every time you go in or out. And also to get food. That's why I decided not to eat. (laughs) Good plan. The food isn't very good. No. It's also... I mean, it's not surprising, but it is too expensive. Right. Like, just getting a salad was more than I wanted to spend. (laughs) And and the whole time you're standing in line, like, the people... Like, the the manager of the, the one of the restaurants is, like, yelling at all of the employees that it's really depressing and upsetting and it's usually just employee one there's just like one person there yeah (laughs) doing all the orders one at a time poor poor people it's not okay so yeah that's all our spots i'm sure i will think of a weirder spot after this and be really bummed that i didn't mention it so oh well i think we got i don't think i don't think i will yeah yeah if you've got some weird spots you should let us know because i'm interested in seeing what other people have to say about that yeah actually this is a great question this may be this maybe should be a twitter thing or something because i i do want to know the weird place like like definitely let us know in the discord or tweet at us or something i I do want to know the weirdest place you played magic just like follow up the tweet announcing the new episode with oh by the way where's where's just the weirdest place you played magic i want to know yeah I, i i will probably do that actually cool Awesome. Well, thanks everybody so much for listening. We do really, really appreciate your time. If you want to lend us some support, head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. I just sent out some pins and tokens and stuff, and I would love to send some to you as well. If you want to find us on social media, I am tweeting from at CCR underscore grindcast. Lee is also on Twitter. I'm at Lee McLeo. And that's going to be it for us. Thanks again, and have a great week. 
Goodbye.